My friends, I hate to burst your bubble, but in our nation we've got trouble. And things aren't half as bad as they can get. If wasted wars are not alarming, give a thought to global warming. Or how about an $18 trillion debt? And all them plastic politicians with their righteous repetitions, puffing out their pompous platitudes. We all know where their vote goes, oil cartels and HMOs, for collecting all them grateful gratitudes. Tax cuts to billionaires increase the cost of Medicare, a Congress that is just there, a puppet show. One politician never panders, that's why I'm rooting for Bernie Sanders and sing this song called Go Bernie Go. Go Bernie Go, we're all behind you if it's on the side of justice. We know that's where we'll find you. The billionaires are running, that's because they know a new day is coming. Go Bernie Go. You may know Australia's drying and English seabirds are dying. Polar bears are sinking in the sea. Desert spreading malnutrition, nuclear emission. But what has that got to do with you and me? Don't you find it quite incredible that our fish are now inedible from chemicals from a thousand miles away? And any day the wind may bring polluted particles from Beijing. We gotta join the world and we gotta do it today. And should you need some further reasons, the island of the singing Polynesians is sinking beneath the sea, you know. We need someone to remind us of the global ties that bind us. That's why I'm singing Go Bernie Go. Go, Bernie, go, we're all behind you If it's on the side of justice We know that's where we'll find you The billionaires are running That's because they know A new day is coming Go, Bernie, go Can you imagine all the fun How he'll shake up Washington With his tousled hair and impish face Telling them how they have to get Out of war and out of debt Out of this raiding social security, logging old growth forests, depleting our groundwater, putting schools in turmoil, and assault weapons in the streets, raping forests, wetlands, oceans, and other natural space. My friends, it's time for some clear thinking. We're on the same boat and the boat is sinking. It may be too late, but it's not too late to try. The way is clear, we know it's doable. We start with energy that's renewable. If we don't succeed in that, We die. Campaign finance reform a world where justice is the norm. And as for money, it just reverse the flow. Be it local or international, we need some thinking that's rational. And that's why I'm singing Go Bernie Go. Go Bernie Go, we're all behind you if it's on the side of justice. We know that's where we'll find you. The billionaires are running, that's because they know a new day is coming. Go, Bernie, go. Tell your nephew, tell your niece, we can't bomb our way to peace. That's why I'm singing, go, Bernie, go. 
Leave a land of slop and sludge, history will be our judge. That's why I'm singing Go Bernie Go. Worst solution I ever saw, every problem is solved with a wall. That's why I'm saying Go Bernie Go. I believe we've reached the hour to give a boost to Bernie power. That's why I'm saying Go Bernie Go. From New York City to the Bible Belt, we need another Roosevelt. That's why I'm singing Go Bernie Go. It's time the people took their turn. Everybody feel the burn. That's why I'm singing Go Bernie Go. Go Bernie Go. We're all behind you. If it's on the side of justice, we know that's where we'll find you. The billionaires are running. That's because they know a new day is coming. Go Bernie Go. And that was Go Bernie Go by Al Brenner. You can search for Al Brenner on YouTube and find that song. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to reach out to me, follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016, or you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can find out back episodes and more, some other links, more about Bernie2016 at Bernie-2016.com. And on that site, you will find a link to my Patreon. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash unrelatedthings. Uh, which is the kind of company name that I run under, um, under which I publish Bernie 2016 podcasts. So if you want to chip in a little bit, you can go to Patreon and become a patron of Bernie 2016. So today is the day after the state of New York went to vote, and uh, I'm still forming my opinions. So anything that you hear from me that isn't me quoting an article or other source material uh, at any point in this program may or may not be the opinion that I hold come tomorrow or the day after. So the good news for Bernie from New York is uh, Bernie got 763,469 votes as of the current tally. There are still a few precincts. There's about 60 precincts that uh, the Huffington Post election tracker doesn't have results for yet. So there's a few more votes to come in. Um, Actually, all of those are in areas where Hillary is leading. So if those come in along the same trends, she will pick up a few additional votes uh, above probably what Bernie stands to gain. <clears throat> Bernie came out of New York with 106 additional delegates, whereas Hillary came out with 139. So not a giant uh, amount of delegates Hillary picked up in in you know pulling ahead, pulling further ahead. Of Bernie, but a sizable number, a number that uh, is helps her build up her lead, which becomes much more difficult to catch at this point. 
the good news for Bernie Sanders is Bernie Sanders won the vast majority of the uh, counties in New York State. He won all but three counties once you get out of the city and out of Westchester County and Orange County right down near the city. Bernie won, you know, all but three of the counties throughout the entire balance of the state. The uh, <clears throat> tough part there is that those counties are much less populated than the counties comprising New York City and, and its immediate surroundings where Hillary Clinton came out on top. So, um, but when you take a look back at when uh, Hillary Clinton was running against Barack Obama, Obama won all of one county in New York State when he was running. He did win a sizable number of votes in some of those other counties. He did come out only slightly behind where Bernie came out uh, on this run. So Barack Obama came out just above 40% of the vote, whereas Bernie came out with about 42% of the vote from New York. And in both cases, Hillary came out with 58%. And actually, Hillary got exactly the same number of delegates the last time, 139 delegates. So uh, she kind of was treading water as far as her popularity versus her opponent um, in the state of New York. <clears throat> but all that said, Hillary Clinton did win a decisive victory in New York. It was expected, but it also it makes it extraordinarily challenging for Bernie to um, win the nomination from the Democratic Party. Had he tied or come within 5% in New York and they had kind of split the delegates more evenly in New York, Bernie would still have an opportunity um, to pull ahead. Uh, at this juncture, with the amount of delegates that he has down, without a tie or better in New York, his path to victory uh, for the nomination is very, very, very slim. Not not entirely closed, and I will continue to do everything I can to uh, make sure that he wins additional delegates and wins uh, some additional states moving forward. Uh, my state is one of the very last to vote, um, along with California and some others. And there are six states coming up uh, in just a few days, I believe on the 26th. Pennsylvania, Maryland, I don't have the whole list in front of me. I know Connecticut, Rhode Island haven't uh, voted yet. So there's still a, a number of states to come. Um, some of those states are also states where Hillary has some pretty good strength. She's polling ahead in Pennsylvania. Um, and I think she probably has some pretty good strength in Connecticut and Maryland as well. Uh, the polls have her also ahead in California. Nationally, the polls are, are super tight. Um, the... Of the last uh, seven polls that I've seen, last time I looked at Real Clear Politics, which aggregates polls, um, five of the last seven polls, there was a 2% margin or less. Every single, and these are the national polls between Hillary and Bernie. Um, <clears throat> Clinton was ahead in more than she was behind, but she was behind in a couple of those polls by 1% or 2%. Two of those polls were uh, in the mid 
uh, doubled or in the mid single digits, a six percent and seven percent lead. Hillary had in a couple of those polls. So the national race, is, as far as all the polling goes, is tighter than ever. Um, the the challenging part is, you know, more than half of the states now have voted, and we can't go back and and try to turn any of those states around. Had the voting begun now, with at the levels the polls are now. I think there is a high probability that Bernie Sanders would have uh, been even or been leading in the delegate count. But that is not the situation that we're in today. We are uh, behind in the delegates pretty significantly coming out of New York with, uh, like I said, not unexpected, but considerable deficit about 16 percentage points uh, a lot of the polling and the trends were showing like a 12 to 15 percentage point lead for hillary there were a couple tighter polls than that but i think on average uh things in new york ended up right about where most of the polls estimated that they would uh new york certainly not without its um significant uh challenges in the whole voting process um, this piece is from HuffingtonPost.com, and this is by Samantha Lockman. Complaining about voting in New York is like kvetching about the G-Train or about overly aggressive costumed characters in Times Square. Everyone agrees that it's unnecessarily terrible, but no one has resolved the problem. With more scrutiny than ever being applied to how the state runs its elections after Tuesday's presidential primary, now is a perfect time for New Yorkers to pick up the phone and call their legislators to tell them to improve the state's election processes. New York operates a closed primary, so each voter must be registered as either a Democrat or Republican to participate. Roughly 3 million New Yorkers, or about 27% of eligible voters in the state, were blocked from casting a ballot Tuesday. It didn't turn out so well. The hurdles for voters are compounded because New York has the nation's earliest registration deadline for party registration. An eligible voter who was registered as unaffiliated had to switch their registration to a particular party by October 9th, more than six months ago, to be able to vote for a presidential hopeful. In early October, Democratic presidential candidate and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton led Senator Bernie Sanders by 22 points in national polls. It's understandable that an unaffiliated voter wouldn't know that the state required them to switch their registration to Democratic to participate that far out, especially since no one was predicting that New York's primary would be as competitive as it was. Sanders repeatedly criticized the nature of the state's closed primary when it became clear it would affect his chances, since he tends to perform better among self-identified independents and first-time primary voters. Quote, While I congratulate Secretary Clinton, I must say that I am really concerned about the conduct of that voting process in New York State, and I hope the process will change in the future, he told reporters Tuesday night. But New York's election, election law problems aren't limited to its ridiculous, ridiculously early registration deadline. The state is one of only 13 that has no early voting. It has no same-day registration, unlike 14 states and the District 
of Colombia. More than 120,000 voters were dropped from the rolls in Brooklyn ahead of the primary. New Yorkers who alleged they were purged from the rolls tried to sue so they could participate in the primary, but a judge blocked their lawsuit. The state constitution requires Republicans and Democrats to be equally represented at all levels of election administration. Common Cause has advocated for nonpartisan election administration to replace the current system. So, quote, familiarity with the election procedures would be the primary qualification for staff rather than partisan affiliation, said Susan Lerner, the executive director of Common Cause New York. The state attorney general, Eric Schneiderman, said Wednesday his office had opened an investigation into the New York City Board of Elections. While some Sanders fans were upset with Tuesday's results, while some Sanders fans who were upset with Tuesday's results blame the Democratic political establishment, it is, after all, a blue state in general presidential elections with a Democratic governor. New York's political dynamics are a bit more complex. Republicans control the upper chamber of the state legislature and haven't jumped at opportunities to bring a bill to the floor to make voting more accessible. Legislation that would have established two weeks of early voting passed out of the Democratic-controlled state assembly in 2014, but died in the Senate, for example. Quote, many of the reforms we advocate for do get passed by the state assembly, and then they stall in the state Senate, Lerner said. We have a hard time getting anybody in the Senate to discuss it, much less take it seriously. Lerner said her office was inundated with calls from eligible voters who were locked out of the primary because of their registration status. She advised those calling to complain to put pressure on their legislators, regardless of the party they are a member of, rather than yell at poll workers or disengage altogether. <clears throat> Unfortunately, from my perspective, the um, risk of voters disengaging altogether is uh, not lost on the legislators who would rather just hang on to the status quo, hang on to their positions of power. State Senator Tim Kennedy who'd sponsored legislation to move the party registration deadline closer to the primary, suggested his bill would pass out of the legislature if the GOP leadership in the state Senate gave it a chance. He argued that the election, that election reform would boost turnout. New York ranked 46th in turnout for the 2014 elections. And I read somewhere as well that uh, New York has had the second lowest uh, election participation of any state that has voted so far. I'm not sure exactly how they compare. Maybe that's against any primary state because I'm not sure exactly how they compare the primaries uh, or states that vote in primaries with states that vote using the caucus process. So some some definitely significant challenges to the process in New York. I talked about that early uh, early deadline to change your party registration on on probably four or five um, previous episodes of Bernie 2016. So uh, maybe coming out of it, there will be enough uh, anger at the process in New York that they'll take some steps forward. Um, and uh, stop disenfranchising 
a, a large number of people who would like to vote. Just think of all the people who, who might have wanted to vote for Bernie or even for Hillary, but couldn't because they didn't change their party registration last October or earlier, um, or they missed the deadline to register, which was, uh, I'm, I'm estimating, about a month ahead of the um, election, or they missed that, that deadline as well. But would have preferred, would have would have wanted to vote for Bernie or for Hillary. That's an enormous number of people that the Democratic Party could have attracted, could have brought into the party. But based on the rules that they have set up in New York, you know, lost that opportunity. Maybe those people will find a a reason, a strong enough reason to join the party later on. But uh, maybe they won't. Maybe they will. You know continue to uh, not be able to express their vote in the way they so choose. New York, of course, isn't the only state that has, um, you know, problems uh, intentional or otherwise that disenfranchise a significant number of voters. And every state that does so should really take a look at making it easier for more people to vote um, and, and express their desires through that political avenue. So right before uh, the uh, New York election, maybe not right before, a couple days before, Bernie had been invited by a uh, organization related to the Vatican. I can't remember the exact name of that organization off the top of my head, um, but it was invited to the Vatican for a conference to give a speech. Um, so Bernie did travel. He did leave leave the campaign trail in New York to travel to the Vatican and give a speech there. And fortunately, there is a uh, audio um, version of that or, or audio is captured and is available. And so without me talking about what Bernie said. Here is Bernie Sanders speaking at the conference on uh, global economics at the Vatican. Stretching back to the first modern encyclical about the industrial economy, re-rolled Bavaria in 1891. To Centesimus Annus, the Francis inspiring encyclical, Laudato Si, his past year, have grappled with the challenges of the market economy. There are few places in modern thought that rival the depth and insight of the Church's moral teachings on the market economy. Over a century ago, Pope Leo XIII highlighted economic issues and challenges in rerun Novara that continue to haunt us today, such as what he called, and I quote, the enormous wealth of a few as opposed to the poverty of the many, end quote. And let us be clear, that situation is worse today. In the year 2016, the top 1% of the people on this planet, the wealthiest 
own more wealth than the bottom 99%, while the wealthiest 85 people own more than the bottom half, three and a half billion people. At a time when so few have so much and so many have so little, we must reject the foundations of this contemporary economy as immoral and unsustainable. The words of Centesimus Annas likewise resonate with us today. One striking example, quote, furthermore, society and the state must ensure wage levels adequate for the maintenance of the worker and his family, including a certain amount for savings. This requires a continuous effort to improve workers' training and capability so that their work will be more skilled and productive, as well as careful controls and adequate legislative measures to block shameful forms of exploitation, especially to the disadvantage of the most vulnerable workers, of immigrants, and of those on the margins of society. The role of trade unions in negotiating minimum salaries and working conditions is decisive in this area. That's paragraph 15. Paragraph 43, the essential wisdom of Centesimus Annus is this. A market economy is beneficial for productivity and economic freedom. But if we let the quest for profits dominate society, if workers become disposable cogs of the financial system, if vast inequalities of power and wealth lead to marginalization of the poor and the powerless, then the common good is squandered and the market economy fails us. Pope John Paul II puts it this way, profit that is the result of illicit exploitation, speculation, or the breaking of solidarity among working people has not justification and represents an abuse in the sight of God and man. We are now 25 years after the fall of communist rule in Eastern Europe, yet we have got to acknowledge that Pope John's, John Paul's warning about the excesses of untrampled finance were deeply pressured. 25 years after Centesimus Annas, speculation, illicit financial flows, environmental destruction, and the weakening of the rights of workers is far more severe today than it was a quarter century ago. Financial excesses, indeed widespread financial criminality on Wall Street, played a direct role in causing the world's worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. We need a political analysis as well as a moral and anthropological analysis to understand what has happened since 1991. We can say that with unregulated globalization, a world market economy built on speculative finance bursts through the legal, political, and moral constraints that had once served to protect the common good in my country, home of the world's largest financial markets, globalization was used as a pretext to deregulate the banks and the decades of legal protections for working people and small businesses. Politicians joined hands with the leading bankers to allow the banks to become, quote unquote, 
too big to fail. The result, eight years ago, the American economy and much of the world was plunged into the worst economic decline since the 1930s. Untold numbers of working people lost their jobs, their homes, and their life savings, and the government bailed out the banks. Inexplicably, the U.S. political system doubled down on this reckless financial deregulation, but our Supreme Court, in a series of deeply misguided decisions, unleashed an unprecedented flow of money into American politics. These decisions culminated in the infamous Citizens United case, which opened the financial spigots for huge campaign contributions by billionaires and large corporations to turn the United States political system to their narrow and greedy advantage. It has established a system in which billionaires today can buy elections. Rather than an economy aimed at the common good, we have been left with an economy operated for the top 1% who get wealthier and wealthier as the working class, the young, and the poor fall further and further behind. And the billionaires and banks have reaped the returns of their campaign investments in the form of special tax privileges, imbalanced trade agreements that favor investors over workers, and that even give multinational companies extra judicial power over governments that are trying to regulate them. But as both Pope John Paul II and Pope Francis have warned us, and the world, the consequences have been even more dire than the disastrous effects of financial bubbles and falling living standards of working class families. Our very soul, our very soul as a nation has suffered as the public has lost faith in political and social institutions. As Pope Francis has stated, I quote, profoundly stated, man is not in charge today, money is in charge, money rules, end of quote. And the Pope has also stated, and I quote, very profoundly, we have created new idols. The worship of the golden calf of old has found a new and heartless image in the cult of money and the dictatorship of an economy which is faceless and lacking any truly humane goal, end of quote. And further from the Pope, while the income of a minority is increasingly, is increasing exponentially, that of the majority is crumbling. This imbalance results from ideologies which uphold the absolute autonomy of markets and financial speculation and thus deny the right of control to states, which are themselves charged with providing for the common good." End of quote. Pope Francis has called on the world to say, and I quote, and how profound, how important this is, no to a financial system that rules rather than serves. And he called upon financial executives and political leaders to pursue financial reform that is informed by ethical considerations. 
He stated plainly and powerfully that the role of wealth and resources in a moral economy must be that of servants, not masters. The widening gap between the rich and the poor, the desperation of the marginalized, the power of corporations over politics is not a phenomenon of the United States alone. The excesses of the unregulated global economy has caused even more damage in the developing countries. They suffer not only from the boom-bust cycles on Wall Street, but from a world economy that puts profits over pollution, oil companies over climate safety, and arms trade over peace. And as an increasing share of new wealth and income goes to a small fraction of those at the top, fixing this gross inequality has become a central challenge. The issue of wealth and income inequality is the great economic issue of our time. It is the great political issue of our time. It is the great moral issue of our time. It is an issue that we must confront in the United States and across the world. Pope Francis has given the most powerful name to the predicament of modern society. He calls it the globalization of indifference. Quote, almost without being aware of it, he noted, we end up being incapable of feeling compassion at the outcry of the poor, weeping for other people's pain, and feeling the need to help them as though all of this were someone else's responsibility and not our own, end quote. We have seen on Wall Street that financial fraud became not only the norm in many ways, but the new business model, business as usual. Top bankers, major executives of Wall Street firms have shown no shame, no shame at all, for their bad behavior, for their illegal behavior, they have made no apologies to the public. The billions and billions of dollars of fine they are paid for financial fraud are just another cost of doing business, another shortcut to unjust profits. Some might feel that it is hopeless to fight the economic juggernaut, that once the market economy escaped the boundaries of morality, it would be impossible to bring the economy back under the dictates of morality and the common good. I am told time and time again by the wealthy and the powerful and the mainstream media that so often represents their interests that we should be practical, that we should accept the status quo, that a truly moral economy is beyond our reach. Yet Pope Francis himself is surely the world's greatest demonstration against such a surrender to despair and cynicism. He has opened the eyes of the world once again to the claims of mercy, justice, and the possibilities of a better world. He is inspiring the world to find a new global consensus for our common home. I see that hope every day and that sense of possibility among America's young people, which gives me an enormous sense of optimism. Our youth are no longer satisfied with corrupt and broken politics. 
and an economy of stark inequality and injustice. They are not satisfied with the destruction of our environment by a fossil fuel industry whose greed has put short-term profits ahead of climate change and the future of our planet. They want, our young people want to live in harmony with nature, as part of nature, not destroy nature. They are calling out for a return to fairness, for an economy that defends the common good by ensuring that every person, rich or poor, has access to quality health care, nutrition, and education. As Pope Francis made powerfully clear last year, and Laudato Si, we have the technology and we have the know-how to solve our problems, from poverty to climate change to health care to the protection of biodiversity. We also have the vast wealth to do so, especially if the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes rather than hiding their funds in the world's tax and secrecy havens as the Panama Papers have shown us. The challenges facing our planet are not mainly technological or even financial, because as a world we are rich enough to increase our investments in skills, infrastructure, and technological know-how to meet our needs and protect the planet. Our challenge is mostly a moral one, to redirect our efforts and vision to the common good. Contessimus Annas, which we celebrate and reflect on today, and Laudato Si are powerful, eloquent, and hopeful messages of this possibility. It is up to us to learn from them and to move boldly toward the common good in our time. Thank you very much. And that was Bernie Sanders' speech delivered at the Vatican at the conference that was sponsored by the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences. Uh, He traveled to the Vatican to deliver that speech to the leaders um, of the Vatican, as well as some other world leaders who were invited to that conference as well. And this next piece is from Inquisitor.com. It is by Mohit Priyadarshi. Bernie Sanders received his first endorsement from a sitting U.S. Senator Wednesday morning, boosting his chances in the tough nomination battle he faces against fellow Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Jeff Merkley, the junior senator from Oregon, called Sanders, quote, a determined leader in an op-ed he wrote in the New York Times. Quote, no decision we make as Americans more dramatically affects the direction of our country than our choice for president. He or she is more than a manager of the executive branch, commander-in-chief, or appointer of judges. The president reflects but also helps define our national values, priorities, and direction. After considering the biggest challenges facing our nation and the future I want for my children and our country, I decided to become the first member of the Senate to support my colleague, Bernie Sanders, for president. 
charting out his own personal history of growing up in a working-class neighborhood in Oregon. Merkley wrote that while America is more wealthy than it was 40 years ago, the problem is that, quote, our economy, both by accident and design, has become rigged to make a fortunate few very well off, while leaving most Americans struggling to keep up. Arguing that working and middle-class Americans today are working longer hours for less income, Merkley wrote that health care, tuition, and other costs have relentlessly pushed higher over the course of the last few decades. This has not only led to the concentration of economic power in the hands of the few, but also political power. Quote, Special interests aided by their political and judicial allies have exercised an even tighter grip on our political system. From the rise of unlimited secret campaign spending to a voter suppression movement, Merkley wrote. To this end, the senator argued the need of the hour is to rethink and restructure American politics and economy. While Merkley wrote that Hillary Clinton would make a strong and capable president, it is Bernie Sanders who would take on the challenges facing the economy in a more direct and fearless way. Quote, Bernie Sanders is boldly and fiercely addressing the biggest challenges facing our country. Moreover, according to Merkley, Sanders is working harder than any other candidate to make his priorities clear in the race for the presidency. By opposing trade deals with countries that pay their workers significantly lower than what workers are paid in America, and by recognizing the effects of climate change, Merkley argued that Bernie Sanders has proved himself, quote, a determined leader whose campaign has taken on the, quote, concentration of campaign cash from the mega wealthy. With Bernie Sanders having won seven out of the last eight contests against Hillary Clinton, and this article was written before the New York uh, election occurred, the timing of Jeff Merkley's endorsement couldn't have come at a more appropriate time for the Vermont senator. But perhaps more importantly, Merkley's endorsement could pave the way for more endorsements for Bernie Sanders in the near future. While previously Democratic senators doubted the longevity of Sanders' campaign, with many predicting that it would fizzle away long before the Democratic convention, his late surge could give confidence to more party and elected officials to announce their support for Bernie Sanders in explicit terms. And in addition to the endorsement by the senator from Oregon, uh, Bernie Sanders got some endorsements from New York unions. And this also was written before the election in New York. And this is also from Inquisitor.com. And this one is by Reno Berkeley. On Wednesday morning, the union representing New York City's transit workers gave Bernie Sanders a resounding endorsement over Hillary Clinton. Sanders visited the Transportation Union Workers Local 100 in Brooklyn to pick up his endorsement and to thank its members. Quote, we all know in this room that you don't have a great and growing middle class unless you have a great and growing trade union. Sanders also took a jab at the super wealthy in his speech. Quote, we've got to stand together, take on the big money and trusts, and make it clear that our government works for all of us, not just the 1%. 
According to Reuters, the TWU Local 100 represents about 42,000 workers in New York City, and a mostly unanimous endorsement is not just a big deal for Bernie Sanders, it is also a scathing indictment of Hillary Clinton and her ties to corporate wealth. Sanders doesn't just talk a big game, he is the only candidate to join workers and voters protesting against the rigged economy. Following his acceptance of the TWU's endorsement, Sanders joined a picket line of Verizon workers. The workers went on strike Wednesday after stalled contract talks. The Verizon workers are also members of the Communication Workers Union, whose members have also voted to endorse Sanders. He told the striking workers that what they are doing is important, not just for themselves, but for workers everywhere. Quote, Today you are standing up not just for justice for Verizon workers, you are standing up for millions of Americans. Both unions polled members prior to revealing their endorsement choices. On the other hand, the International Brotherhood of Electric Workers officially endorsed Hillary Clinton on Wednesday. The IBEW Local 3 chapter did this even after large numbers of its members had urged leaders to endorse Bernie Sanders. After IBEW Local 3's Clinton endorsement was announced, the union's Facebook page was flooded with angry comments. Many questioned the leadership about their lack of engagement with members. The admin for the group implied that the reason they had chosen Clinton over Sanders was because Clinton, quote, reached out to the union leaders while Sanders had not. Quote, we are not opposed to Bernie. If you want to vote for Bernie, go for it. Bernie has never reached out to us for our endorsement. Hillary has. We love Bernie, but Hillary's the one. Quote, Bernie Sanders is walking the Verizon picket line with our own members today, and you endorse his opponent just because her team asked you to, and his didn't? Actions speak louder than words. Nice job. Another member directly called for the union leadership to allow members to vote on it. Quote, do what all the other locals have done. Put a resolution in front of the body and vote on it. Another member of IBEW described Sanders' work on the picket lines as a way Sanders, quote, reached out to union workers. Quote, Bernie Sanders has been busy reaching out to unions by actually marching with them and fighting for progressive issues tooth and nail. He He's even been doing speeches and working hand-in-hand with local IBEW chapters. Earlier in the campaign, the IBEW had refrained from supporting any candidate, partly due to a letter-writing campaign by its members who wanted the union to officially endorse Sanders. Regardless of official endorsements, one thing is clear. When the membership votes, Bernie wins. When leadership chooses, Clinton wins. This is true even with non-union organizations such as Planned Parenthood, NARL, and Human Human Rights Campaign, all of which bypassed their members and instead chose at the executive or board levels to endorse Clinton. Like Like the IBEW members, the majority of paying members for these organizations were angry that they had not been consulted. So more endorsements for Bernie and a little bit more about uh, why certain organizations tend to make endorsements in certain ways and a little bit of insight into whether those Organizations are making their decisions democratically or making their decisions from the top. 
And I liked this last piece as well. Um, if you've listened to earlier episodes, you hear that, you know, I often find one or two pieces of someone, you know, just stating how they feel, stating what they believe in, and uh, stating why they support Bernie Sanders. And this is another one of those pieces. This is from the website bougieblackgirl.com. It's B-O-U-G-I-E-B-L-A-C-K-G-I-R-L.com. And the author appears to be Bougie Black Girl for this piece. Disclaimer for my readers, you know I've never endorsed a candidate. I hate politics with the heat of 1,000 white-hot suns. But if the mainstream media, celebrities, and people who sell weight-loss teas on Instagram can, I can too. Look, I'm just a mom, wife, your friend, veteran, and black lady who's very worried about the direction this country is going in. In case you're concerned, I will not turn our BBG space into a political site. I will continue to write how black women should explore all of their political options, including the ones I disagree with. We at BBG support black women running for office and all of their political choices, regardless of party. That's how we do it here. This post is my own opinion and in no way expresses the thoughts of my followers, friends, or contributors of BBG. I'm not famous or wealthy. I don't have access to the movers and shakers of the world. I'm just someone who writes because I love writing. I promised myself that I would quit politics after over 10 years of political experience, and I just couldn't. Yes, quote, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. One more thing. Please ignore my grammatical errors. I don't have a fancy editor, and I'm a product of the Giuliani public school system. Yes, y'all. I had to throw that in there. So here's who I'm supporting for president. And I love that part uh, because, you know, someone can write the most strident or most eloquent or most heartfelt piece and get responses to it that say, oh, you spelled your wrong or you know, this structure of this sentence is terrible and totally miss the point of the piece and, and just focus on the tiniest little insignificant details. So I really, really appreciate that she added that into her kind of preamble to her piece. There was a time when someone said we could fly. Doubters said we couldn't, and we did. There was a time when someone said we could go to the moon. Doubters said we couldn't, and we did. We built roads, bridges, and skyscrapers. We cured diseases. We invented cars and this thing called the Internet Superhighway. And when we stood together, we started a nation, freed the enslaved, torn down walls, and said love is love. And when we were attacked, we came together and defeated evil tyrants. Let's not forget that those were once big ideas. They were impossible ideas. And now they're big and impossible ideas that have changed our world. 
Today, we have people saying universal health care for all is impossible. Universal education can't happen while nations around the world are already doing both. They say liberty and justice for all is only for those who can afford it, and peace can only happen by dropping bombs. We've seceded our American spirit, our heart and our soul, to the big money interests who are invested in our despair, complacency, and defeat. A defeated America? That's not the America I grew up in. I sincerely want to know when we became a nation of settlers and quitters. When do we become a nation where thousands were poisoned and corporations brought the world's economy to its knees and no one went to jail? When did we become a nation where strip malls full of stuff made by child laborers were more important than preserving our only home, Earth? When did we become a nation where to get out of poverty, millions have to go into debt and even more poverty to get an education? When did we become a nation where corporations were more important than we the people and those corporations decided who we should vote for and what we should believe? When did we become a prison nation. Our prisons are filled with our mentally ill, drug users, and innocent family members for profit. There was a time when we believed and knew that if you worked hard and you tried your best, you could be or do anything. When did we become a nation where the possible is impossible? When did we become hopeless? When did we become a nation of pessimists who are hell-bent on mocking the idealists. When did we compromise the basic American value of yes, we can and become a nation of no, we can't? There was a time when the world laughed at our American naivete, unique spirit, and bold innovations. What did we do? We dreamt big, ignored them, just did the damn thing, and proved them wrong. It's almost like we've forgotten who we really are. So let me remind you. We're a nation, native people, and of immigrants from every corner of the globe. We're a nation of muckrakers, entrepreneurs, free thinkers, scientists, engineers, teachers, caretakers, creatives, and humanitarians. We're a nation where diverse minds, cultures, and people are truly American. I believe in that America. I believe in the America of builders, innovators, and creators. I believe in an America of go-getters, hard workers, and achievers. I still believe in a fair and just nation that promises, quote, all men are created equal and liberty and justice for all. I want to live in and leave that America to our children and our children's children. Do you? Let's be who we really are. This is why I'm supporting a good man, a just man, a fair man, a man who has been right on every important issue since the day he took his oath as a congressman and now as a senator from Vermont, a man who believes that a united America can truly do great things. I'm supporting Bernie Sanders, and I hope you do too. The only limit you have is the one you have placed on yourself. Think, know, and be limitless.
so as I said, that uh, post was from bougieblackgirl.com. And I just really, really liked um, the what the author here had to say. And, you know, one of, one of the pieces that really jumped out to me as I was reading through that is, I sincerely want to know when we became a nation of settlers and quitters. And that brings to my mind the kind of dichotomy between the bold ideas of Bernie Sanders and the hope and the belief in what we can do as a country and the incrementalism of Hillary Clinton um, in saying, you know, she, she puts forward plans that she can get done and knowing full well and, and also saying that Sanders' plans can never never get accomplished because they're too big and too bold. She doesn't use that language that they're too big and too bold. But uh, her supporters definitely tear down Bernie Sanders' potential ability <clears throat> to get things done with a, a Congress that very likely would be largely intractable. But what I think about when I think about that is the incrementalism of Bill Clinton's presidency passed a whole lot of legislation that was absolutely terrible because of the incrementalism and because of the compromising that uh, they did with the Republicans in power and the Democrats in power that went along with it. And gave up so much in that incremental approach to, quote unquote, getting things done, that we ended up with a huge host of legislation coming out of the the Clinton presidency that was terrible for our country. We had NAFTA and CAFTA, the trade agreements, that were terrible for the working class and for the manufacturing, and other industries in our country. We had Don't Ask, Don't Tell come out of that approach, which was terrible and and put a halt to any potential progress that the gay rights movement um, was making or was pushing for in the fight for equality. We had the Defense of Marriage Act come out of that incremental approach to legislating to try to quote unquote get things done the things that they got done the things that the clinton uh presidency managed to get done were were terrible things they they set back they slowed down they reversed progress that that we were pushing for that we were fighting for and that we were sometimes achieving in, in a number of different spheres. The crime bill is what led to today's enormous uh, levels of incarceration in our country. The welfare reform bill knocked thousands of people off of welfare, um, having huge impacts today with uh, the lifetime limits that were in that bill really impacting people now. 
there was just a whole host of legislation that passed in the Clinton administration. Deregulations of the banks, repeal of Glass-Steagall was passed under Bill Clinton. I'm hard-pressed to find a, a, a good list of strong, positive, successful legislation that got passed under Bill Clinton. I I can't think of, and I'm sure there's something out there, but I can't think of any major bills that passed in the Clinton administration that were big positive steps forward. So I guess what it comes down to for me is it would have been far better in many cases, and certainly not all. I know that in any of those bills, there are probably a couple of good things that passed. Uh, in the crime bill, I know there was the Violence Against Women Act. Women Act was enacted as part of the crime bill, and that was a very positive piece of legislation. But overall, <clears throat> being attached to the crime bill itself, um, that that bill was much more negative than positive in the long run. So yes, there were some some positive things that happened, and. Some may argue that the incremental approach made those positive things happen, but but so much was given away. So much movement backwards, in my opinion, was was made because of that approach. Uh, <clears throat> I think that by and large, it would have been much, much better if there was gridlock if there was no if there was no quote unquote progress if none of that legislation passed if nafta didn't pass if cafta didn't pass you know we'd still be able to label our meat with the nation of origin we can't anymore it's now against the law or against the the global law built by nafta and cafta for us to label our meat with the nation of origin. Um, you know, that's one of many, many things that uh, we gave up our ability to pass laws that benefit our citizens in these trade agreements. If DOMA, Defense Against Mar- the Defense of Marriage Act, never passed, if Don't Ask, Don't Tell never passed, if the crime bill of... Uh, 1994 never passed if the welfare reform act never passed i think we would be better off i think that you know there would be some downside i don't i don't deny like i said that there were some pieces incorporated into that legislation that were were positive steps but i think overall we would be in a better place, in a stronger place, if there was if there was gridlock, then rather than rather than incremental approach to compromise and get things done, I'm not against compromise, but the compromise when you when you have to compromise, and in politics you always have to compromise if you want to get if you want to move forward at all, you have to compromise. Um, so I'm certainly not against compromise, but when you start out in the middle. When you start out with in the middle ground, in the in the middle opinion 
in the middle position on an issue and then you're forced to compromise, you end up on the wrong side in in my opinion. If you start out with your reaching for the stars with your strongest and toughest position and say, this is where we need to end up, you may fail and that may be all right, or you may compromise and that may be all right. But when you compromise starting from your, your strongest and toughest position and you end up you know, with an agreement that you and, and your, the opposing side or sides come together on, you are highly likely to get much more of what you want and what you're fighting for than if you start off with a position in the middle that you think can win and then compromise down to uh, the bottom of the barrel. This is what Bernie Sanders did when, with his vet- veterans legislation. Bernie put together a really, really good bill, a bill that he believed in wholeheartedly. And he brought that to the Congress and fought for that bill. And he lost. That bill was voted down. Um, but he didn't give up. He started with it. He started with the strongest bill he could put together. And, and he didn't succeed. But because he started there, he was able to come back and he was able to make more compromises, work together with Senator McCain and others, and forge a bill that was very, very positive for veterans, um, but that, you know, wasn't, wasn't exactly what he originally wanted, but was what he agreed uh would be a strong step forward for veterans and the majority of the Congress voted for that and it passed and became law. So it's just that I, I so wholeheartedly disagree with Hillary Clinton's um, position of basically what, what I consider, you know, starting starting at a point that you believe that you can get through congress believe that you can move forward and i know she's not there in that at that what i will call low level on all of her positions but when you when you talk about you know wanting to get things done i think that getting things done can be a bad strategy in the long run. You may get some some small victories, but if you give away, if you if you move backwards so far just for some small victories, then uh you set the stage for for where we are now, for where, you know, the the criminal justice system is today where the welfare system is today, where social security is today. Um, You know, if you compromise too much, you compromise the future. So bring on the big, bold ideas there. It's what we need. It's, it's where we need to be. We need to set our targets to where we need to be and know that it's not going to be a a simple, simple process to get there. We're going to have to fight like hell to make it happen. 
and we're going to have to never stop, never give up, never give in. And that doesn't mean never compromise. There's times to, to compromise, to move forward. But there's times to stand up and say, no, you know, we're not going to give give this away. This is where we need to go. This is where we need to be. And, uh, you know, to fight like heck to get there. And that's what Bernie's doing. And that's why I'm a huge supporter of Bernie Sanders. And I appreciate all of you listening because I feel that, you know, if you're seeking out and listening to a podcast on Bernie Sanders, then you're likely a big supporter of Bernie as well for hopefully similar reasons. So that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can reach out at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can check out more, check out some back episodes and more at my website, bernie-2016.com. And we will go out tonight with a song by Maya Urbshot, U-R-B-S-C-H-A-T. You can find that on YouTube by searching for Maya Urbshot. And it is called The Call for Sanders. Thanks for listening. Come listen well to me From Washington to Florida From sea to roaring briny sea The system's unsustainable With injustice to the brim So now we ask for someone who Is unafraid to go out on a limb For Sanders now the call rings out Through the masses churning Louder, louder hear the shout Let us vote for or a decent working wage to fight discrimination and create a brighter, kinder age to make sure when our children grow this planet's still around but Bernie wants these things as well as odd as that may sound Young and old we can agree this is what we're learning uphold our rights and we'll be free let us vote Oh